Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. Good uh, morning, afternoon, everybody. Wherever it depends on, I guess, where you are here in uh, California. It is still, uh, it is still morning, 9 a.m. All right, a lot to cover today. There's a lot going on in the news. There's just a, a, a lot of stuff happening, and uh, we're going to try to get to, uh, to quite a bit of it. Uh, you know, first up, I think we have to talk about what's, uh, you know, this, this whole issue with the four soldiers who were killed in uh, Niger. Niger, Niger, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. What are American soldiers doing in Niger? That's the fundamental question. I mean, we can talk about Donald Trump's uh, phone call, and we can talk about uh, intelligence failures, which they clearly were, communication failures, which they clearly were, and and, and, and lots of other you know, failures, uh, logistical failures, uh, you know, leaving a soldier behind or the fact that one soldier was found about a mile from where this ambush happened. So American troops, for those of you who are not familiar with the story, American troops were, were, were uh, you know, basically attacked uh, in Nigeria. It's not clear uh, how well armed they were, uh, the, the, the American troops themselves. Uh, there the, the were a lot. It, it sounds like the attackers were quite well armed and there were a lot of them. It, you know, so this is clearly a, a military breakdown and a military failure. And the fact that four American troops are dead is a tragedy and, 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 and very sad. But the real question that has to be asked, the fundamental question that has to be asked is why are American troops there to begin with? And we need to be able to explain that. And then beyond that, should they be there? Where else are they? If they're in Niger, which most Americans have never heard of, but, you know, I guess that's not a standard because Americans are not exactly whizzes at um, a geography. We'll talk about where Niger is in a minute um, and, and why we're there. Where else are American troops? Do we have, indeed, full disclosure in terms of uh, the whereabouts of American troops in Africa in particular? And then... Uh, you know, the latest stories I've seen uh, have basically suggested that the Trump administration is going to, in a sense, double up or increase its presence in Africa, generally, including in Niger. In Niger. So does that make any sense? Uh, what are we doing there to begin with? Should we be increasing our presence in, um, in this country and in other parts of Africa? What's the goal? What's the exit strategy? What does victory look like? All the important questions that, of course, almost nobody is asking, and uh, it doesn't seem like anybody is actually has a strategy. So the headlines I saw a couple of days ago suggested that Mathis is indicating greater U.S. involvement in Africa, more troops being sent into Africa. Does that make sense? Okay, let's start. Let's start by asking the question of uh, where Niger is, right? So uh, I suggest pulling up a map. You can do it on Google Maps. It's very easy. You just put Niger, N-I-G-E-R, in. And, um, you know, and it's pretty simple. It's, it's worth knowing when the news is happening. 
you know where this where these places are. You, you, quick lesson in in geography, and it's nice to get to know the world a little bit and to get to know what's going on in the world. So I suggest pulling up a map. And if you pull up a map, what you'll find is Niger is is in northern Africa. Um, it's landlocked. It's not by any ocean or sea. It's not by the Mediterranean. It's not by the, the Atlantic Ocean. It it borders a lot of different countries. That but in the north, it borders Libya and Algeria. We'll talk about Libya in particular, but also Algeria in a little while. On the west, it borders Mali. There's this important reference to, we'll talk about Mali. Then there's, uh, to, to the south, well, to the east, it borders Chad. And to the south, it borders Nigeria, another, another important place. And then it also borders Burkina Faso and Benin. Yeah. Yeah, countries most of us have never heard of. Um, but they're right there. If you open up a map, you can see it. It's uh, it's definitely worth doing, you know, learning about the world, getting to know a little bit about what's going on in the world, particularly given that American troops are there, particularly given that American troops are dying. Uh, it's it's good it's good to know where this is happening, why this is happening, maybe. And um, all right, so that's a map. That's a geography. So why is this important? So the reason they're there, let's start with the reason they're there. The reason they're there is because Niger has become an important, I guess, hub for the activities of uh, Islamic totalitarians, of uh, Islamo-fascists, uh, jihadis. Uh, you've got a number of different groups there. Boko Haram, which you probably heard a lot about over the last few years, uh, Boko Haram is active in the northern Nigeria on the border with Niger. And uh, with Chad and Cameroon, so that would be in the north, uh, in the southeastern corner of Niger. There's a lot of Boko Haram, uh, a lot of Boko Haram activities. Boko Haram has affiliated itself, at least one branch of Boko Haram has affiliated itself with ISIS. So in a sense, you could argue ISIS is active in, in the area. There are also other branches of ISIS or other uh, affiliates of ISIS in the region. Um, Again, these are Islamist groups that have affiliated themselves with ISIS. There's no ne necessarily any military or political or other coordination between them. But uh, Libya has a significant presence of ISIS. Uh, Mali has a significant presence of Islamists affiliated with ISIS. Um, so, and then you've got Boko Haram and there, and there are others in the regions as well. Then you've also got... Just uh, you've got Al Qaeda affiliates. So you remember Al Qaeda, uh, Osama bin Laden. Al Qaeda still around. We still haven't crushed and defeated Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda still around, and Al Qaeda has a presence in Chad, Mali, Algeria, Libya, and Niger. And uh, so Niger is like right in the middle, and it's surrounded by countries that have a Al Qaeda or ISIS affiliate presence. And it, it's somewhat, I guess, strategic because it is, it's on this path between east and west, west and east, between Mali and Chad. And uh, if you go, uh, you know, if you go further to the uh, to the east, you get Sudan, uh, South Sudan, where there's a civil war. You get Central African Republic, which is, and then you get to Ethiopia and ultimately Somalia. But Somalia is pretty far. So uh, Sudan, and of course you've got Egypt, and uh, now Algeria, which is to the north. 
Algeria is uh, is a country that has a, a long tradition, if you could call it that, of uh, of Islamism, uh, of Islamist uh, infighting. It had a, a, a massive civil war in which I think hundreds of thousands of people died in the 1990s between the Islamists and the and just a regular authoritarian uh, statists uh, in uh, in Algeria. And there's still remnants, strong remnants of Islamists there. Libya, of course, is a completely fragmented country. Once, uh, you know, the, we got, we and others got rid of, uh, of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the, the place is complete anarchy, ruled by various gangs, many of them associated with the Islamist jihadi cause, uh, whether Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, or some kind of variant, a variant of Mali has seen a rise, significant rise in, uh, in Islamist and jihadi forces. The French in Mali, just to add, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Timbuktu. Timbuktu is, is part of an ancient civilization, Islamic civilization that was in North Africa, a city of learning. And one of the things that it had fantastic libraries of Islamic writings from the distant past. And uh, one of the first things that uh, the jihadis did when they took Timbuktu is they burnt all the libraries and destroyed them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, so the French are there, the French are in Mali, the French are helping Mali. Mali, I guess, is a former French colony, uh, Burkina Faso and Cut d'Ivory are, are all kind of, uh, former French colonies and they're all in that same region. And uh, so the French are there, they've got significant forces in Mali trying to defeat the Islamists, trying to fight the Islamists. I don't think the U.S. The U.S. probably assists the French with intelligence, with drones. Uh, there is an Air Force base in Niger that the U.S. runs, and uh, we have something like um, somewhere around 800 troops. It turns out maybe up to a thousand in Niger and uh, potentially in Mali, Chad, uh, in Nigeria, all kind of working together, and all I think also working with the French. So. There's a major presence, a major presence here, right? A major presence of, of the U.S., a thousand troops, as you know, four were killed recently uh, because of a presence of Al-Qaeda, because of the presence of ISIS affiliates, because of the presence of, of, the presence of, of Islamists all over this region. Uh, and, uh, and the, you know, they've, they've been emboldened, you know, over the last five, six years. And particularly in Mali, they became very aggressive. But again, the French supposedly are taking care of, uh, of Mali. Uh, you know, there's a big drone base. It looks like the United States is investing $100 million in, uh, to create a, um, a base uh, for, for drones, for surveillance, and for um, attack drones uh, out of this area. All right, so in other words, you know, there's, uh, there's this vast territory. It's massive. It's bigger than Europe, massive. It's mostly desert. There's nothing there. Uh, very few people live there. And yet America has a 1,000 troops there. And okay, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about why the hell we're there, why we care, why we don't let them just fight it out? Why, why does America's interest, 
Why does the protection of Americans' individual rights require the risking of American lives in the godforsaken desert of Niger? And why is the response to the horrible killing of four American troops to double up and to send more Americans into harm's way in the middle of nowhere that has basically no impact on America and on American lives? All right, we're going to take a quick break. I think it's a three-minute break. When we come back, we'll talk more about why, why, why. What a, what a waste. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Iran Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back after PhD, this. author, media contributor. This is the Iran Book Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, so we're talking about why Niger? Why, why does the United States have troops in 120 different countries? Do they even know what they're doing? Is there a strategy? No. So I think the first conclusion now, I mean, I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. This is a part of American empire, this is cronyism, this is for power and control. And, and there's elements of truth to all of that. There's elements of truth to the idea that this is cronyism, that, you know, certain, you know, uh, politicians, certain companies, certain lobbyists lobby for, for U.S. troops to be in certain areas in order to protect, you know, maybe mining or natural resources, or maybe even certain politicians in foreign countries lobby for that with, with, uh, with money. It, you know, it's, it's, it's true that there's an element of power uh, yeah, isn't it great to have an empire over the entire world? It's kind of interesting that Donald Trump ran as uh, uh, being opposed to all of this. Uh, you know, we were going to bring all the troops home and we were going to be more focused on America first. What the hell is America first got to do with Niger? Uh, nothing, right? So there's empire... So, yeah, there are all these reasons you can give and you can find examples of people within the government who uphold this. But I have a different theory, which I think is much more accurate and much more reasonable and, um, and, and reflects the reality that's actually out there in the world. And that's just that these people are utterly, uh, unquestionably, uh, our military leaders and our political leaders, completely and utterly incompetent. And that there is no strategy. And when you don't have a strategy, when you don't know what you are doing, and I don't think General Mathis, and I don't think, uh, I don't think the, 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 the uh, chiefs of staff, I don't think they have a clue. I don't think they have a clue what they're doing. And, and I'm not just talking about the Trump administration. This is true of Obama, and this is true under Bush. And so here's, here's what, what's going on. You basically have uh, a war that the United States kind of implicitly declared in 2002, where it gave uh, the president authority to engage in military actions all over the world in order to defeat al-Qaeda. And that law has never really been revised. It's kind of a general approval for the use of force without really... Right. Without really 
defining what that use of force would be and without defining victory, without defining what it looks like to win, just generally approving the command in chief to use whatever force necessary in order to defeat Al-Qaeda. And and somehow that fit into going to war with Iraq and that somehow fit into uh, sending troops in to defeat uh, ISIS and uh, sending troops ultimately all over the world to fight Al-Qaeda. Because you know what? It turns out that Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Islamism generally, jihadism generally, have satellites everywhere. Everywhere. You know, Southeast Asia and the Philippines and in Malaysia and in Indonesia and in South Asia, certainly in Pakistan, Afghanistan, even India. And suddenly in the Middle East, you know, Iraq and Syria and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel. And then there's the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And then if you go across northern Africa, well, I mean, there are all these Islamists in Libya and in Algeria. And then there's a whole wing of Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Morocco. And then you start going south to Mali and Niger and Chad and Nigeria. There's Boko Haram. And, and then Kenya and Tanzania and Somalia and Sudan. I mean, there's Islamists everywhere in the world. And if your idea of defeating Islamic totalitarianism, of defeating Islamism, of defeating Al-Qaeda... It's to defeat every little group in every one of these countries that self-identifies in some way as Islamist, as jihadi. Uh, it, defeating every single little group in every one of these countries, just with American forces, maybe with a little bit of help from, from the French in Mali and maybe from the Egyptians in Egypt. If that's a strategy, then of course we're going to lose. You know, and, and we're going to fight. It's not just about losing, it's about fighting stupid wars and getting American kids killed for nothing. For nothing. These folk kids get killed for nothing. Why are we in Niger? To fight Islamism? But we know where Islamism originates. We know who funds all the Islamic causes. We know who gets them ultimately the weapons, who who teaches them the ideology. We've known this forever. Instead of, you know, every time, you know, what do you call it, that, that game that, that, the, the, that the groundhog pops up and you uh, whack-a-mole, whack-a-mole, there you go, whack-a-mole, thank you. So instead of playing whack-a-mole, which is what we're playing, with troops in 120 different countries whacking the different moles as they pop up out of the jungle or out of the desert or out of whatever. How about going to the source? How about going to the root? How about, you know, finding the, the, the origins of this and defeating and destroying and dismantling the origins, the source, where it starts? Look, they've always been Islamists. They've always been Muslims who take their religion really, really seriously and are willing to kill for it. But they have no power without the support of two countries. Two countries make all the difference. Two countries, Saudi Arabia and Iran. That's it. Nothing else is relevant. Niger is relevant. Mali is relevant. Libya is relevant. Who cares? These places, have you ever been to Niger? I haven't, but I know what it looks like. It's desert. 
There's nothing there. It's completely desert. Nothing lives there. Nomads travel through it. Traders who trade, the, you know, between one oasis in the desert to another oasis in the desert. There is no, no real strategic value to the United States. If you think they're smuggling terrorists into Europe through Niger, then let the Europeans deal with it. But there's no evidence of that. And the problem is much more likely to be Libya and Algeria. You can't have troops everywhere where Islamists pop up. Islamists are always going to pop up. What, you're going to kill all the Muslims in the world? You want to deal with this, you have to find its origins, its source. And the only place that ha- where the origin is, is Saudi Arabia and Iran, two countries that are based on Sharia law, two countries dedicated to worldwide rule of Islam. The, the, the Saudis, based on the Wahhabis, and the, 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 uh, the Iranians, you know, based on their Shiite beliefs. But they're ruled by theocrats. Saudi Arabia is trying to modernize. They actually let women drive now. Woo, whippy. But that's the enemy. They fund every radicalized mosque, every radicalized movement, every radicalized person is being funded by either the Saudis or the Iranians. It's no accident that 15 of the terrorists on 9-11 were Saudis. Now, the regime is trying to fight some of this terrorism because the regime finds it uncomfortable to have them. But they have a deal with the Wahhabis, who are the spiritual leaders of Saudi Arabia. And part of that deal is giving them free reign to continue to radicalize, continue to radicalize. Now, the only way to win this war is not to have troops in 120 different countries. It's to recognize the evil of Islamic totalitarianism, to recognize the evil of jihadism, to identify its origins, political origins, which is in Saudi Arabia and Iran, and to end it there. And, you know, let the Nigerians deal with their own. Let the Nigerians fight Boko Haram. Let the Libyans fight it out. Maybe they'll be so busy fighting each other, they won't have time to come after us. Stop worrying about every mole that pops his head out of the ground and start thinking strategically, strategically about the enemy that the United States faces and strategically it's not in Niger it's all in the Middle East all right when we come back um, I want to talk a little bit more about this just just a few minutes Um, we'll talk about Syria and what's going on there we'll talk about the Iran uh, declassification thing that Trump did and uh, and again we'll talk about what the what the actual solutions to all these uh, all these issues uh, without the distraction of having to talk about Nigeria. All right. Uh, so we'll continue this foreign policy trend when we come back. You're listening to the Iran Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. And, uh, of course, feel free to call in, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. Iran
Yaron Brook. Hey everybody, all right. Well, today we're talking about Africa of all places, but Northern Africa, kind of the Islamic part of Africa. The Northern part of Africa is mostly Muslim. Uh, although uh, it keeps spreading south, that is, Islam is a growing religion. Uh, there's a huge competition on in Africa between uh, Muslim, um, between Muslim, uh, what do you call it, uh, evangelicals and Christian evangelicals to convert the local population to their religion. It, it's a continuous battle between the two, uh, been going on. Uh, really, to some extent, for hundreds of years, but it's really intensifying right now. But basically, the whole north of Africa is uh, is Muslim. Some countries are split down the middle. Uh, 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 Nigeria, the northern part is Islamic. The southern part is, I guess, pagan or Christian or a little bit of both. But why are we there is the real question. Is there a strategy for the United States to be in uh in uh, in Africa, and, and and I'm I'm contending no, zero, none, nada, no strategy. It's a whack-a-mole strat- policy which started with Bush in the later part of his administration. Really picked up with Obama. You know, we've had we've had a presence in dozens and dozens of countries. I think we're now up to 120, but this has been around for a long time. This isn't new, and. By doing that, we're neglecting the actual enemy, the enemy which is, I believe, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I believe that Obama's policies, Bush's policies, and then Obama's policies, and now Trump's policies, have basically favored Iran significantly over Saudi Arabia in a weird kind of way. So that now Iran is the dominant player in the Middle East. Without any question, they are the dominant player in the Middle East, and we'll talk about that. Now, if you want to ask any questions, make any comments, disagree with me, or or just ask. I know a lot about the Middle East, so if you have any questions about terrorism or about uh, uh, Chad or Mali or Niger, whatever the hell I know about any of those, um, feel free to uh, give me me a call. Uh, It's 888-900-3393, and... uh, be happy to answer any questions you might have. We're also doing something today that we did last week, um, a moment of reason, which is uh, the last segment of the second hour will be dedicated to your questions. I, I have one question already lined up, uh, but if, if you want to ask a question unrelated to the fight on terrorism, unrelated to, uh, you know, to what we're talking about right now, then wait for that last segment in the second hour uh, and I'll take the question uh, then. We're going to make that a regular question period. Um, the source of this problem is on the Sunni side. Sunni Shia, the diff- different sects, if you will, of Islam. They've hated each other forever. It's like Protestants and Catholics a little bit, not quite. Um, the theologian, theological differences between them are not quite uh, as clear. But Saudi Arabia is Sunni that's what's important to know. Iran is Shiite. And uh, they basically both want the same thing from a, from a theological perspective. They want the establishment of a Muslim empire over the whole world. The Iranians want it ruled by Shiite, by them. The Saudis want it ruled by Wahhabis, by them. But they both want it. Now, Saudi Arabia might be going through a process of moderation right now. We will see how to believe 
they are still the fountainhead of radicalization. That's where the money comes from, them and, and the uh, United Arab Emirates and Qatar and uh, Kuwait, the whole Gulf oil area. They are the, they're the people with the money. And they fund all these groups. They fund the building of the mosques. They fund the spreading of the ideology. And until you stop that, whether by military means or other means, forget about it. Forget about Niger or anything. It doesn't matter. The ideology will expand. Terrorism will expand. And right now, uh, Iran, which is, I think, the, the most consistent advocate of Sharia law and consistent advocate of Islamism, is winning the battle. We'll get to that in a minute. Just, just to remind you that not only is the Trump administration not following any of these practices, not only is the Trump administration not view Saudi Arabia as an enemy, it views, just like Bush and just like Obama, it views Saudi Arabia as a major friend. And Trump signed a $110 billion, billion dollar deal arms deal with the Saudis, he danced with the Saudi princes. I, I mean, I don't know how you get more corrupt than American politicians' dealings with the Saudi royal family. I mean, it, it is just pure corruption on the part of American politicians from Trump on down. Trump, Obama, Clinton, of course. Clinton got massive quantities of money into their foundation from the Saudis, it, it is so explicit. It is so obvious right, that it, it, nobody reports on it, nobody cares, nobody wants to do anything about it. it, it, it we're told the American people are not interested. Too, too, too complicated. You know, we don't want to talk about the Middle East. Too you guys are too stupid to understand is basically what politicians and everybody else is telling you. That's pathetic. It's not true about you, the American people. Uh, you need to know these things. And, of course, if you listen to Iran Book Show, you will know these things. Now, why is Iran the winner of the whack-a-mole American strategy? Why is Iran the winner of, uh, you know, basically this, uh, the, 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 you know, the whole U.S. strategy, which is to send troops to 120 and not to fight an actual war? Well, Iran has been winning since George Bush decided to invade Iraq and then didn't know what to do with it and then had no strategy about what to do with Iraq because Iran has massive influence on Iraq. Iraq, it turns out, is majority Shiite, quite religious. And when the Americans got rid of Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni secular dictator, and let people vote, then they voted for Shiite theocrats to rule over them. Influence controlled by the Iranians. The Sunnis in Iraq gravitated towards ISIS. But now ISIS has been defeated by the Iraqi government forces and by Shiite militia funded, armed, supported by the Iranian National Guard which is the, the most radical part of, of the Iranian government. Now, in addition, in the Syrian civil war, Assad, the president of Syria, has aligned himself with Iran for a very long time. And he is, again, winning the battle with the help of the Russians. 
and the help of the Iranians, and the help of Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shiite terrorist group in Lebanon, which controls the country of Lebanon, and which has fought in Syria on the side of Assad. I know this is, most of you are probably going, stop, Iran, brain overload, too many facts. You can't understand the world if you don't have facts. Can't understand the world if you don't have facts. So, and I'm giving you just plain facts, right? So look at Iran. Iran now has, if you go to the map, you got to have a map, map. Open up it in Google Maps, the Middle East. And you look at Iran, and Iran now has Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, all under its control, all under its control, which means they're on the border of Israel, they're on the border with Saudi Arabia, they're on the border with Jordan, they're basically the largest, most influential power in the Middle East, by far. And all of this, all of this, a consequence of George Bush's unprincipled, meaningless, unfocused whack-a-mole wars, which ultimately led to the creation of ISIS with some help from Obama. And, you know, the bringing of democracy to the Middle East, which ultimately emboldened the Muslim Brotherhood, which emboldened a civil war in Syria, which, and, and of course, uh, the Americans have always put pressure on Israel never to defeat Hezbollah, so Hezbollah, the Iranian ally in Lebanon, is emboldened. And because of American weakness, because of America's weakness, not just of itself, but it's Americans' weakness in, in weakening Israel, Iran is thriving. Iran is, enorm is enormously powerful and increasing in its power, increasing its influence and becoming the most potent political, military and political force in the Middle East. Turkey, which used to be a secular power, which used to be and still is part of NATO, but used to be secular and an ally of the United States, is slowly turning towards Islam, slowly becoming more of an ally of Iran and Saudi Arabia to some extent. They have to the balancing act between the two because Turkey is Sunni on the one hand, but is worried about Iranian expansionism on the other hand, so they have to appease them as well. So Turkey realizes that Iran is the power they need to deal with. So Turkey is turning towards Iran and sympathetic to Iran. So you have a Turkey that is a problem, and it's moving slowly away from NATO, getting into fights with the United States, is no longer secular. And what you're getting under Bush, Obama, Trump is greater radicalization in the Middle East, more power to the most radical groups in the Middle East, primarily the Iranian radical groups, more Islamic, you know, the, the, the Turkey becoming more Islamic, Saudi Arabia in a sense feeling isolated, but still continuing to support, uh, you know, the radicalization all over the world, and the United States doing nothing. Instead, it's sending troops to die in the middle of the desert in Niger. Criminal. That's what this is. That's what Bush, Obama, Trump are responsible for. Criminal, anti-American behavior. All right. You're listening to the Iran Book Show. Uh, we'll be back after these messages. This is the Iran Book Show.
the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brooks Show. All right, so we're talking foreign policy. We're talking about, you know, I've come up with a new term, I think. As, uh, as my producer pointed out, it's whack-a-mole foreign policy or the whack-a-mole foreign policy of the Trump uh, and Obama era. It's have no strategy. Where did, what, what happened to America first? I'm wondering, what happened to America first? All right, so we got 10 minutes to, to finish up on this topic because after the next break, I want to I wanna turn to some domestic issues. But what is America first? America first should mean the placing of American interests above all else. And that requires one to actually define what American interests are. That is, what is required to protect the life and liberty, the life, liberty, and property of American citizens? That's the question. That's the only question our foreign policy and military should be concerned about. Is having a presence in Niger necessary for the defense of American life, liberty, and property? No. Is taking care of the Iranian threat unnecessary for the protection of the lives, liberty, and property of Americans long term? I believe the answer is yes. But that's where the debate should be. Agree or disagree with me. That's where the debate should be. Bring the troops home from 119 countries or 120 countries or whatever the number is. And let's have a real debate on what we should be doing with those troops, on who we should go to war with, on what, from whom, we should be protecting America. Now, Trump is completely ignoring the strategic strategic issues. So what did he just do? He just decertified the nuclear arms deal, which which horrifically... Uh, 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 the Trump, the uh, Obama administration signed with Iran and all these Europeans, decertified, which it turns out means absolutely nothing. Nothing. There are no consequences to decertifying it. We can now basically not do anything. Congress can do nothing, and it'll just stay decertified. Uh, businesses will continue to be able to do business with Iran. Iran will continue to be able to build uh, nuclear weapons in, I think it's now eight years or seven years. And uh, they will continue to be allowed to build, what do you call it, uh, uh, ballistic missiles without any restrictions. Basically, they could continue without any hindrance to continue to pose a threat to the United States. So decertifying is kind of the most wimpy solution one could come to. It's, it's vaguely him living up to a campaign promise without really living up to the campaign promise because it doesn't do anything. Congress could end the Iran deal. The probability of that happening is zero. Congress could renegotiate the, uh, the Iran deal, so-called improve the deal, make it a better deal for America, the probability of that actually happening is very close to zero, maybe a little higher, maybe a little above zero, 
because ending the deal, that's zero. This is, there may be 5%. The probability of Congress doing nothing, nothing, probably close to 100%. And as a consequence, nothing happens to Iran. Now, you asked me what should be done about Iran. Well, I suggest you read my book on foreign policy. I've got a book where I have three essays. It was written a long time ago, but nothing in it has really changed. I suggest picking it up. It's called Winning the Unwinnable War. It was edited by Ilan Giorno, Winning the Unwinnable War, in which we, Ilan, Ilan basically lays out, but I support what he proposes, and my essays are consistent with it. I've got three essays in that book. Basically lays out a strategy for winning the war. And yeah, it involves crushing the Iranian regime, and it involves bringing the Saudis to their knees. That's what it involves. It involves using the mightiest military force in human history, the mightiest military force in all of human history, to actually protect America. And not to run around the desert protecting various tribes against various other tribes, trying to figure out who our friends are, who our enemies are. It means getting out of Afghanistan. It means getting out of Chad and Niger and, and uh, you know, Sudan and Libya and all these places and destroying the fountainhead of Islamism. So I'd suggest a few things. One, go buy the book. It's, it's available at Amazon, Winning the Unwinnable War. It's my, it's by Ilan Giorno, uh, but you'll see my name on three of the essays in there. One um, co-authored with Ilan and two co-authored with uh, another f- uh, former AI fellow, um, Alex Epstein. And um, it lays out a strategy, the book, a strategy for winning what George W. Bush called an unwinnable war, what Obama and Trump are trying to make an unwinnable war. There is, America has no strategy. What they have is whack-a-mole foreign policy. Whack-a-mole foreign policy. If you have a question on this, 888-900-3393, Question, any kind of question on uh, American foreign policy. As part of the strategy, I would definitely unleash the Israelis, give them a green light, crush your enemies, and in particular, two major Islamist forces that are on the border with Israel, Hezbollah and Hamas. Those need to be crushed, particularly Hezbollah. Hezbollah is now allied, has been always allied with the Iranians. It's always been a, um, you know, like the, the Iranian terrorist organization. And more powerful now than ever before, Hezbollah now has gotten real under-combat training by fighting in Syria. It has been equipped with the latest of military equipment that the Iranians have. Iranians, of course, get weapons from the Russians. That's another thing you would think you would do something about is stop the sale of weaponry to Iran, you know, Syria and others by the Russians. I thought we were, I thought, I thought Trump and Putin were going to be best friends or something. But no, it continues. Uh, part of part of part of what is being uh, uh, sold there is uh, uh, is uh, defense systems that uh, uh, this, the North Koreans now have this as well. They also got this from the Russians. Uh, the SAM, I forget, it's two hundred or whatever, three hundred. These are the anti-aircraft missiles that are that are 
supposedly the best in the world and that the Americans are not sure they can defeat, although I have a feeling the Israelis could. You know, we do nothing about the important stuff. This is the important stuff. Dealing with Iran and Saudi Arabia, dealing with Hezbollah, dealing with what's happening in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, supporting the Kurds in Iraq rather than the Iranian-backed Iraqi government. Those are the important things. Those would actually project a strategy, an actual foreign policy. But no. God forbid we have something like that. Uh, and w again, we haven't had it for several presidents. And those of you who, who uh, were excited... Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. Hey, everybody. We're talking um, whack-a-mole farm policy today. We, we've come up with a new term. I like it. I like it. Whack-a-mole farm policy because that's the quality of the farm policy we have today. We got a problem over there. Whack. We got a Oh, whack. Don't think strategically. And suddenly, 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 never, ever, ever think America first. Not even the so-called America first president can think America first. He's the, he's the least American, America first, maybe other than Obama, president that I know of. But none of them do, because none of them actually think strategically. Thinking strategically would mean who is the enemy and how, in the big picture, do we defeat them. By the way, if you're interested in this topic, I have two great courses that I've done on this issue that you can get for free on, uh, on my podcast. One is called uh, A Brief History of the Middle East, and it's, it's in five parts, five lectures with Q&A. And the other is called The Rise of Totalitarian Islam, which is in four lectures. And combined, that will give you the best introduction, the best introduction I think ever presented on the problems we face in the Middle East, if I can be so arrogant as to say, I don't think anybody's put it all together quite as well as I have in those two courses in terms of presenting the problems and indicating the solutions. So you can get that on iTunes or anywhere where my podcast is available. And it's free. That's the amazing thing. It's free. So if you go backwards, uh, the September 27th episode, it's called History Lesson. The Rise of Totalitarian Islam, that's one course. And you can go back further back into uh, September, and you will find History Lesson, A Brief History of the Middle East, Part 1 through 5. Um, I, I, you know, I encourage you all to listen to it because I think you'll learn a lot. I think you'll also enjoy it, and, um, and I think it's the best. I really do. I think if you want to understand the Middle East, 
If you want to understand the enemy that we are fighting, still fighting. I think we started this war started in 1979 when, uh, when Iran, Khomeini took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. That's November 4th, 1979. Yep, almost 40 years ago. That's when the war started. And ah, anyway, we don't even recognize there's a war, never mind uh, when it started. Okay, uh, we've got a call from Donnie in Richmond, Virginia, who wants to talk about this topic. Hey, Donnie, how's it going? Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? I can. I can hear you perfectly. Okay, um, long-time listener, first-time caller. I just I wanted to throw a strategy thing. I have not sure. listened to your the little the two little classes that you just told me about it, and I wish I already had before I called in. <laughs> However, I wanted. Go ahead. I think there is a strategic thing that they're doing in Africa, and in my opinion, this and this is a viewpoint. I'm not a veteran. I'm not a war hero. I'm not anything like that. I'm just a little common guy that. Had sure. kind of self-educated himself on a lot of things that are going on over there. And my thought would be this. If on a world stage it is not politically acceptable to go after Iran or to go after Saudi Arabia as the sources of these things and the fact that these people are willing to die for a cause and it's an ideology thing, to me, in my opinion, the strategy would be to reach out as far as the tentacles reach, even into a place like Africa or someplace that may 20 years from now, considering that this would be a war of attrition and a war of faith, that if you start way out at the extremes and you start working your way backwards, you have to come back to the source and you're at least stopping it from expanding. So I'm confused by the concept when you say that but this you'll is never win. that we should be your push. But they can't win. See, you can't win a no. war like that. You can't win by... A little group pops up in one part of Chad and then another part of Niger and then another part of this and another part of that. You're constantly chasing them. And they have the strategic advantage. They continuously get funding and arms and support and moral support from Iran and Saudi Arabia. On top of that, what you're showing the world is that you are beholden to world opinion. So you are weak. You're not a leader. You don't think strategically. So we have troops today fighting Islam in Philippines, in Malaysia, in right. in in, right. in uh, and and we're losing. We're not places. we're not winning. Right. It's not like radical Islam or or Islamic totalitarianism is shrinking because we're doing all this. Instead of saying screw world opinion, let me say that again. I okay, think it's screw. You know, to hell with to hell with world opinion. America first. I, this is the one phrase of everything Trump said that I actually agree with on foreign policy. The phrase, not his intention, because he doesn't understand what that means. But, yes, all that matters is America, and our interest comes first. And you know what? We're going to, if you don't want to go with Iran, then at least do what what Bush and Obama did in the beginning, which is completely isolated, completely uh, destroy its economy by any means possible. Do the same thing to Saudi Arabia. Start isolating these countries. But why not just go to war, get it over with, and move on? But this is going to be an unwinnable, endless, working forever. Right. There will always be a mole popping his head up somewhere in the world, and we'll send troops, and our kids will die for nothing because there's no direction. And then on top of that, think about this, right? So we're sending troops to fight these little satellites of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But we know where the headquarters are. 
We know where the mass is. For example, for ISIS, it's in Syria and Iraq. Or was. They've recently right. been defeated. Mm. Why didn't we send massive American troops to crush ISIS in week one? Why did it take three years and let other people do it? And then if we crushed them, then Boko Haram would have never announced for ISIS. ISIS would have never become a household name. People all over Europe would have never said, oh, I'm going to kill Europeans in the name of ISIS. ISIS would have. Why didn't we do that in week one or two? Why don't we go and find every last remnant of Al Qaeda and take whatever military we need to do it in Afghanistan and in Pakistan or wherever ISIS still is and crush them? Even even by your theory, you would go at least to the hubs of where these instead of any little group that say, oh, with ISIS, bam, we try to go after them. It's an endless, endless, endless war, which we will only lose. That's yeah, my and, and, and my opinion is that I think that they know that already, and it's a yeah, war of attrition. So stop, stop it. I say bring the troops home. It's better to bring the troops home, and, 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 and uh, at least let's fortify our defenses in a sense and figure out okay, then having me, them die in Niger. If, if you, let me ask you this question, though. If you bring all of the troops home and you just let the, uh, let the Middle East do what it does, they're now, they're you kill already each other. know where it's going to go. No, you don't. Because they're, they're going to fight each other. The Sunnis are going to kill Shiites. The Shiites will kill Sunnis. Al-Qaeda will kill ISIS. ISIS will kill Al-Qaeda. In Africa, all of them start? will fight each other and they'll kill each other. And, you know, maybe we can come over there in, 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 in 20 years and mop it up. But in the meantime, let the them turf? slaughter each we other and tell, give the the Israelis a green light to defend themselves and to take care of the terrorists there. Uh, you, okay, valid points. Okay. I'd rather do that. Then have my kids, your kids, the kids of uh, parents who are sending their kids thinking that their purpose is to, to protect America to, to, to godforsaken places that have nothing. That Nobody from Niger, nobody from that part of the world, from Boko Haram, has attacked America. None of them have attacked Americans. Yes, they've kidnapped Nigerian girls. Let the Nigerians fight. The Nigerians have lots of money from oil. Let them fight Boko Haram. Uh, you know, nobody from Mali has, has killed an American. It is not an American self-interest to be in all these places around the world playing this whack-a-mole game. Uh, it's better. And, and I don't believe we should all come home and not do anything. I believe we should do something. But if we're not going to do anything meaningful, then I'd rather we do nothing and at least our troops don't die for nothing. I value the lives of the men and women who are serving this country, the men and women who have volunteered to fight for the defense of America. And when they are used not to defend America, I view that as treasonous. I view that as criminal. And I view that as, a, as, as, as massively irresponsible of whoever the president is. And that was true of Bush and Obama. And Trump is no different. He's exactly the same as all the others. Thanks, Donnie. <laughs> I appreciate the call. I get all excited. None of that was meant as uh, me yelling at you. <laughs> Just my frustration at the world. But, but definitely get my courses. Uh, definitely go find uh, the history lessons, the rise of totalitarian Islam, and the brief history of the Middle East. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to be releasing other history lessons on my podcast. So sign up and subscribe to the podcast on blogtalkradio.com and look up Yaron Brook or on iTunes, or in any podcasting app. Right now, I've got a history lesson on the corporation. Where does the corporation come from? Is it a legitimate conf concept uh, for business? All right, we're going to take a uh, quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about...
the Federal Reserve. You're listening to Ron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brooks Show. All right, we've been talking foreign policy today and uh, with, uh, with the death of the four soldiers in Niger and, and continued deaths of Americans in Afghanistan and uh, once in a while in Iraq or Syria or, 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 or somewhere else. Just, I think, just horrific, horrific that American troops, American young men and women are dying because our foreign policy establishment, our presidents, our generals have no strategy, zero strategy. Whack-a-mole foreign policy is what we're calling it. All right, we got Rich on the line from White Plains, New York. Hey, Rich. Hey, Euron, how are you? I'm, I'm good, I'm good. It's frustrated, but good. <laughs> Who's not frustrated about something or another uh, 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 these days, uh, the, way, the way we're divided? But yeah. um, Well, I'm know, not worried you're... about the division. You see, I don't worry about division. I worry about truth. And what worries me is not that we're divided. What worries me is that we, we have drifted left and right, everybody, so far from truth, so far from what works, so far from what's good for America. That's what worries me. You know, uh, we'll always be divided. It's good. You know, it's good. The people who hold falsehoods should be divided from the people who hold the truth. Problem no, today no, is you're, everybody you're, holds falsehoods. You're, you're right. The, the truth is continually being harder to find because of the sides that people are taking. They, they, are, they are placing their blind uh, trust in either yep. one uh, a party or the other, one talking point or the other. But at any rate... Well, one or one uh, television wanted... network or the other. It's even begun to that. Journalism yeah. now is about taking sides. It's not about finding the truth. Yeah, yeah, you have to uh, forget it. But anyway, I just wanted to say that I, I admire your point of view. I've been using the term whack-a-mole myself for, for quite a long time. Good. And, um, you know, while I understand that you still think that there's a way to, you know, defeat uh, uh, radical Islam over, you know, in Iran and, you know, where, at its origins, I believe we made a mistake and there was a turning point Right after 9-11. After 9-11, everybody came together and says, do something. I agree. And George Bush had a choice, in my, in my opinion. He could either go play whack-a-mole, which is what he did, or we could secure our borders and try to keep ourselves safe that way. And, you know, yeah. it's not to... Rich, we're going to disagree on this one, because I don't think this has anything to do with securing our borders. No power has ever survived by building walls. Building walls, securing borders, is a sure way of guaranteeing defeat. The way you win, the way the Romans won when they won, the way every power, military power, has always won when it needed to win, was to go out there, find the enemy, and crush them, defeat them thoroughly. The problem with George Bush, and I agree with you on this, was that he went after the wrong enemy. He had an opportunity after 9-11 to define the enemy clearly, to define it as Islamic totalitarianism, to define it as jihadism, and he didn't. He defined it as terrorism. 
If terrorism is the enemy, then the only thing you have is whack-a-mole. But if you define it as the ideology of Islamism, right, of jihadism, then you find the people who are advocating it, you find the people who are funding it, you find the people that, that fountain habit of it, and there are only two countries in the world that, that do this, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And instead of making Saudi Arabia a friend, it should have been defined as an enemy. Instead of not doing anything about Iran and going to Iraq, we should have gone after Iran. And if we had, after 9-11, when everybody wanted to do something, actually devastated Iran and Saudi Arabia instead of Afghanistan and Iraq, it would have been over by now. It would have been gone. Well, I, I don't disagree with you, Yura, because you seem to be an expert on that. But with regard to securing our borders and, and trying whom? to... whom? Who's the threat at our borders? Well, the, it, you can't use history as an example. We've, we've already seen that this is an unconventional type of quote-unquote war. It's and, not unconventional. Guerrilla warfare was fought by the barbarians against the Romans. This kind of warfare has always been fought throughout history against powerful militaries. There's nothing unique here, and the only way to stop it is not building walls. They'll go under, they'll go over, they'll come by boat, they'll come by plane, they'll, do, they'll come through Canada. There's, the only way to, to stop it is to go to the source and destroy the source and to destroy their motivation, to show them unequivocally that they will be defeated. Let me recommend something to you. I recommend that you go to Amazon and you buy Winning the Unwinnable War. It's cheap. You can get it on the Kindle for nothing. And it, it lays everything out. And the whole idea of building a wall and hunkering down is so defeatist. And at the end of the day, you're, hurting, you're only hurting the American economy. You're only hurting good people who want to come to this country instead of actually going after the enemy. Uh, the enemy... The enemy will find a way into America. The enemy will find a way into America because they're heavily motivated. And walls won't stop them, never have throughout human history, and they still won't. So if you want to win this war, there are no shortcuts. You have to do it right. And, and again, uh, thanks, thanks uh, Rich, for listening. Thanks for calling. Really appreciate it. Go read Winning the Unwinnable War. Go buy it. And then, again, I recommend to everybody – Follow my podcast. Uh, you know, you, you won't find a better presentation of the history of our enemies, the rise, and, the rise of totalitarian Islam than on my podcast. And, and the history of the Middle East, you'd have to read 40 books to get what I condensed down into five courses, so uh, five lectures. So I recommend history of the Middle, a brief history of the Middle East also on my podcast. And it's all, all for free. And you, and you load it up on your iPhone and you listen to it on the way to work or something or while, while, while you're exercising in the morning, easy. And plus, you get all the other podcasts, you get all these shows. And, uh, you know, I've got, I've got one uh, lecture there also as a history lesson on the rise and decline of the state of Israel and the problems with Israel. You've got one on money lending. And then you've got re recently I just uploaded the corporation. All right. I want to switch topics here uh, because enough foreign policy. It's too depressing and, and nothing's going to come of it because – Rich is much more likely to get his way. We'll build a wall, but that's gonna that's not gonna help us. Uh, you, you know, nobody nobody in the foreseeable future is gonna do what's necessary to go after the Iranians. Uh, Iranians not hard to defeat Iran. It's easy. Not no country in the world, uh, certainly no country in the Middle East, can stand up to the American might and American military. They don't even come close. Don't even come close. Um. Anyway. 
Fedorov, uh, interesting stuff happening on that front because uh, Trump is about to announce his choice for, for the chairman of the Federal Reserve, a very powerful position, maybe the most powerful economic position uh, in the United States and possibly possibly the world, more, more powerful, I think, than the Treasury Secretary or the uh, chief economic advisor to the president. Um, and uh, we've got a number of different competitors for the role. Uh, we've got Janet Yellen, who is the current chairman of the Federal Reserve. We've got um, Jerome Powell, who's uh, one of the Fed governors, who's on the board that makes these kind of decisions already and has been there in a while. A while. We've got Gary Cohen, who is uh, chief economic advisor to the president and was the front runner for this position until he criticized Trump. Gary, Gary, you can't criticize Trump if you want to advance in life. It's wrong. Look, look at me. Right. I criticize Trump. And anyway, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. Trump is a narcissist and he does not tolerate criticism from anyone. Media, his own colleagues, his own friends, his anybody. You cannot criticize him. So you, you messed up. So I don't think Gary's going to get it. Kevin Walsh, who is a former Fed governor. He was a Fed governor under um, Bernanke. And he was there during the financial crisis and was responsible for everything the Fed did during the financial crisis. So, uh, so Kevin Walsh is another. And then I think the most interesting uh, possibility is, uh, is John Taylor. Uh, John Taylor is a Stanford economist, generally a free market guy. None of these other people, I would call them free market guys. They were all either economic statists, they believe – the, the, the central planning, or they are cronies. I would consider Walsh, Cohn, and Powell cronies. And I would consider Yellen, well, Yellen and Powell are, are clear statists. And John Taylor is the only one who's a free market guy. And this is why I truly believe John Taylor is not going to get the job. Now, it's not just that, and I'm going to get a little technical on you here. So, uh, but bear with me. Again, you listen to your own book show, not just to hear me yelling and inspiring, but also to get educated because you're not going to hear this stuff anywhere else. The Federal Reserve is the most powerful economic institution in the world. It basically controls the money supply of the United States. It prints the money. It determines interest rates. It determines the quantity of money in the economy an interest rate charged on money, at least on the short-term rate, in the economy. It has massive ability to distort the U.S. economy, for example, by buying financial assets or selling financial assets. That's, by the way, how it expands or shrinks the amount of money in the economy. As most of you know, the Federal Reserve bought about $4.5 trillion. That's with a T, trillion. That's $1,000 billion which is a million millions. So four million millions of uh, various financial instruments, primarily uh, bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And by doing that, expanded, nominally expanded the money supply by four trillion. The funny thing is, at the same time, uh, those four trillion were put by the banks into reserve at the Fed. So really, in terms of circulating money, not much really changed and not much really expanded. Anyway, the Fed has this incredible discretionary power. It doesn't really report to anybody. 
It's an independent institution, government institution. But, you know, you can impeach the Federal Reserve chairman, but other than that, he's pretty autonomous. Bernanke, almost all Fed chairmen have had, since the Great Depression, since 1933, have had complete autonomy in terms of what they do. They weren't bound by any rules or by any standards or by any restrictions or by any constraints. And that's what, what one, two, three, four of the five nominees would like to continue. The, advantage, the, 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 the thing John Taylor is different, the way John Taylor is different, is he would like to constrain the Fed. He would like to constrain its ability to move interest rates, to, to either print money or extract money from the economy. Um, and that's what makes him interesting. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about what John Taylor wants to do about the Taylor rule, what these others would do, and what I would suggest in terms of the Fed, and maybe talk about the inherent, inherent problem with the very existence of the Federal Reserve. All right, you're listening to your own book show on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be back after these messages. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Yaron Brook Show. All right, this is Yaron uh, Brook. We're talking about the Federal Reserve. And, uh, you know, Trump is going to have to make a choice here about nominating a new Fed chairman. Now, if I had to guess right now, this is my prediction. You can call me on it. But my prediction is he's going to go with Yellen. Why Yellen? Because he knows her. Uh, he doesn't want anybody new who might stand up to him, God forbid, who might criticize him, God forbid. Um, so he's going to go with the known quantity. Yellen's a known quantity. I also think Donald Trump is a real estate guy. He wants low interest rates. He doesn't really care about much, and his understanding in economics is superficial at best. It, it, it's, it's very bad. And Yellen's going to keep – she's a dove. She's going to keep interest rates low for as long as you can. He might go with somebody like Jerome Powell or Gary Cohen who are going to do the same thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure he won't go with Kevin Walsh. Kevin Walsh is too much of a, of a loose cannon, I think, and, and too much of a Republican. And, you know, Yellen, uh, Powell, Cohen, all Democrats, I, I think that's where um, Donald Trump's heart really is. It's in the Democratic Party when it comes to economic issues. And I, and I suspect he's going to go with one of them. Easiest, safest appointment would be to appoint Janet Yellen. I if I could influence the decision, which again, I would love to see John Taylor in the role because John Taylor has a view somewhat, at least to some extent of limited government and also of limiting the power of the fed and limiting the power of the fed in terms of its discretion, in terms of what it does. So he would have a rule, an equation, if you will. I'm not a huge fan of, of the rule, but better than nothing. Um, a, a rule that, that is predictable that the markets know about how monetary policy would would uh, move over time. 
And it would not be at the discretion of some bunch of economists who come up with some bunch of economic theories. And, and uh, it would be one equation, basically. And the markets would know. And they would adjust. And while I think it's far, far from optimal, it's, it's better. He, 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 now, would John Taylor stick to the Taylor rule if he got into power? Unfortunately, I think he wouldn't. Uh, I mean, this is the problem with the Federal Reserve. It's a political institution. And they always succumb to political pressure. So this is my bottom line. The only solution to Federal Reserve is to do away with it. I, I think the Federal Reserve is a horrible institution. I would like to do away with it, and I would like to uh, do away with the government having any control over money or interest rates. I'd like to pass that responsibility over to the public, private sector. I'd like to give banks the responsibility of issuing currency based on some reserve that they have, like gold. And then interest rates would be determined purely by the market. There would be no no government set interest rates. Think about it this way. Um, central planning doesn't work. When government sets prices, you either have – they either set them too high or too low. The only proper price is a market price. It's the price where supply and demand clear. It's the price that integrates our values, what we care about. Imagine if the government set the price of an iPhone. I mean, it would completely distort the whole supply chain of the iPhone and destroy Apple and, and either make the iPhone too expensive, which is what it would probably do, or it would make it so cheap Apple would stop producing it. So we'd either have shortages or surpluses because if it was too expensive, nobody would want to buy it. No, we know this doesn't work because the Soviet Union experimented in prices of bread and what you had is shortages and surpluses, and it was just a disaster. Every time. Price controls by the government. Uh, Nixon tried this in the 70s. Every time government tries to impose price controls, it messes it up. It screws it up completely. But we take the most important price in the entire economy. By the way, the most important price in the entire economy is interest rates. Because every economic decision relies on some estimate, on some projection of interest rates. Everything. Every, every product you have out there is impacted. Its value is impacted by interest rates in the economy. So we take interest rates, the most important price in the entire economy. And we centrally plan that. We let the government determine that through the Federal Reserve. We take money, maybe the most important product in the entire economy, because we use it to purchase every other product. We use it to save, we use it to invest, and we give the government a monopoly over its distribution, over its creation and distribution. And how ridiculous is that? We don't believe in government monopolies. Well, I guess we do. We have a government basically monopoly over education. We're working towards a government monopoly over health care. They still have first-class mail they have a monopoly over. We can never destroy government monopolies, it seems. But they don't work. And they certainly don't work when it comes to money and interest rates. All they do is distort and destroy the economy. So nobody, not John Taylor, not Alan Greenspan, not Ben Bernanke, not Janet Yellen, can determine the right interest rates. Only markets can do that. And in trying to do it, all they do is set us up for failure. Alan Greenspan's interest rate policy 
set us up for the Great Recession. Interstate policy during the 1920s set us up for the Great Depression. Interest rates during the 1930s set up the continuation of the Great Depression. The Federal Reserve has been an unmitigated disaster since its founding. And, and there's a lot more I could say about this, but we are a little short in time here. So I'll just say this. It doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who Trump, but I think it'll tell us a lot about Trump's personality. If, if uh, he appoints um, John Taylor, that would, you know, that would be one of the better things he's done. If he does that, just because I think John Taylor could be more independent, but he'll probably appoint some lackey, um, Cohen, Powell, or Yellen, uh, and that'll tell you a lot about Donald Trump. That'll tell you a lot about. Not that you need to know a lot more about Donald Trump. I think we already know all we need to know about him. All right, I'm going to take a call from Peter, but Peter, suppose you have two questions: one on the Fed and one on uh, uh, borders. Let's do the Fed question now. Then we're going to take a break. Then we'll get to your other question. All right. And Peter's calling okay, from Germany. Uh, cool. Yes, that's right. I'm cooking dinner right now, so really quick. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, Federal. I was wondering if you could clarify for me a particular uh, my understanding of the difference between recessions and depressions. So as far as I can tell, all depressions are. Uh, the result of government interference or federal uh, central bank interference in the economy and their reaction in effect to a recession. And a recession is a natural phenomenon in yeah. the free market. It's just it's so just no I don't I don't is, think uh, that's happy. right. I, yeah. I, I think in an in a I think you're right in this sense. That in a free market I don't think they would be depressions. I think depressions can only exist systematic long-term collapse of the economy can only exist because of government action. So they are, depression is a consequence of governments uh, messing up once a recession. Well, it's not even once a recession happens because I think they create the recession. So, But recessions can happen for two causes. One is because of government failure, but it is possible to have a recession that's caused by uh, the market. So dramatic technological change can cause a short-term recession. But most recessions, most recessions are caused like depressions by government failures. So I, I wouldn't hold it as recession as market depression is not. It's The difference between them is the depth, how bad they are, and how long they are. Depressions are m massive collapses of the economy that last a long time. Recessions tend to be shorter and shallower. But, you know, the 91 recession in the U.S. was caused by the Federal Reserve. The recession that started the Great Depression was caused by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Great Recession, what's called in 2008, was caused by the Federal Reserve So and other government policies. So government has caused most of the recessions of the 20 and 21st century and certainly has caused all the depressions. Does that answer yeah, the question? Yeah, I agree with it. Yeah, I agree with the depression part. I was just wondering, in terms of um, the analogy, I, a recession I always associate with, to break it down on the individual level, uh, you made a mistake and 
No, that's just not true. That you made just, a mistake. Just not and true. A, and there needs to be a reallocation of capital, you know, in the economy no. because certain no. It's not a mistake. No? It's not a mistake okay. because the, it's a it's a government caused mistake, which yes, you need a recession in order to reallocate the capital because the government caused the markets to screw up. There have been very few recessions that in America that I am familiar with that were not caused directly by government policy. That caused people to make mistakes that need to be fixed. And sometimes what the government does is it takes a recession and turns it into depression. All right, we have to take a break here. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Peter, for calling. We'll get you at the other side of the break. You're listening to Run Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Yaron Brook. All right, this is the final segment today, and we call the segment um moment of reason and and it's basically an open q a so you can call up 888-900-3393 and, and call and ask about anything about any issue that's on your mind um you can ask me whatever you want not no trolling but other than that it's uh it's an open mic so um we're going to start off with peter but call in 888-900-3393 peter has a question on a on a different topic i guess the original topic we talked about earlier this morning go ahead peter yeah um in the i like your whack-a-mole uh term thank you but in the beginning of in the beginning of the show i actually came up with uh an analogy of my own uh, to describe american foreign policy because it reminded me of my garbage policy here at home you know i i, I keep <laughs> Hunting down, I keep hunting down individual fruit flies that keep popping up and start annoying me, uh, and and I keep just doing that instead of you know going to the source and taking the garbage out. So that was my analogy to America. That's a good analogy. I, I hope it's not true, but it's a good analogy. <laughs> well, well, sometimes it is. Yeah, yeah. it it works well. You can buy a lid for the garbage so uh, to minimize the fruit flies. Do you have a, did you have a question on borders or something? Uh, no, that was just all okay. I had uh, okay. on foreign Good. policy. Good. Yeah, I mean, it's another variation of the whack-a-mole foreign policy. So, uh, uh, cool. Thanks, Peter. Calling from Germany. Where he's cooking dinner at, what's the time over there? Eight, nine o'clock p.m.? Uh, yeah, it's uh, just about uh, eight o'clock. Eight o'clock p.m. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening. And, um, and, and, and as I said, let me remind everybody, you can... You can catch all my podcasts, the Blaze ones, the ones I do not on the Blaze, the ones I just put up lectures of mine, uh, courses of mine, everything, everything uh, you can catch on the Iran Book Show on Blog Talk Radio, or which is just a host for, for all this content, or on iTunes or any podcasting app. Just look up Iran Book Show and, uh, and you can find it. And there's a lot of great content there, so please do that. Also... Later this week, I'll be launching a Patreon site. For those of you who don't know what Patreon is, Patreon is a way for you to support the show financially. Uh, it's a way for you to contribute directly to the show and, and to help us do marketing for it, to promote it, to, to, to enhance it. 
And that will be launched, launched uh, later in the week together with a website, a Yuan Brook show uh, website. So uh, a lot is going to happen in the next uh, few days, really. And uh, hopefully, hopefully all of you will uh, stay engaged. And, and thanks, all of you, for listening. Um, all right, 888-900-3393. We've got about, I don't know, about eight minutes if you want to sneak in a quick call. I did get a question in advance about the opioid epidemic. What do I think about the opioid epidemic? And this is, look, this is a big, big, uh, big issue, and I, I'm certainly no expert about it. And there's a lot of research one would have to do to really figure out the sequence of events that have happened to get us to where we are today, where, where I don't know, thousands of people are dying from opioid overdose, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands, or maybe more of people are addicted now to opioids all around the country. Uh, it, it seems to be afflicting primarily uh, middle-aged men, um, and, and particularly in the middle of the country or places like New Hampshire. and, and uh, so, so I think that there are two things going on here. Two things going on here. One is a sociological, psychological issue that's going on where people are, in a sense, open to being addicted, willing to being addicted, you know, uh, uh, taking on this addiction or, or looking to get high. And, and, and most overdoses, most overdoses, most of the deaths are not from people trying to medicate uh, following their doctor's prescribed medication for pain. Almost all the overdoses, almost all the deaths are consequence of people trying to get high. People who are addicted, who are trying to up the dosage in recreational use of these opioids. Ultimately, heroin, uh, Oxycontin, all these kind of opioids that, that, that uh, are very, very addictive. Pain medication are very, very addictive. And there's a certain sociological, psychological aspect to this. We, we unfortunately, in this country have today a large population of people who have no purpose in life and who have no self-esteem and who have lost the will, the interest in living and embracing life and really loving life and loving their own life. That's the lack of self-esteem. And, and I think this is a consequence of a welfare state. This is a consequence of a mixed economy. This is a consequence of being told repeatedly the game is rigged and they have no chance. This is a consequence to be told repeatedly that you didn't build that. You are not responsible for your life. is just in the hands of your genes, your environment, the politicians, the, the, the state around you. That you are nothing and nobody and have no shot at being successful. That you should sit around. I've used this example many times. Sit around in South Ohio and wait for the jobs to come back. You are a victim of the Chinese. You are a victim of illegal immigrants. You are a victim, 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 victim of technology, of robots. This is a consequence of the psychology of victimhood. We have taken a whole generation of people, particularly uh, high school graduates who, or, or, or people who didn't graduate from, who never went to college, whether they graduated from high school or not. And he used to have manufacturing jobs and maybe don't anymore. And uh, who used to be in the middle class or lower middle class and, and, and became unemployed at some point. And we have told them they are victims. We have told them they cannot be successful. We have told them 
that there is no work for them anywhere that's worthwhile. And they have lost all purpose and self-esteem in their life. And when you lose purpose and self-esteem, life is not worth living anymore. And then all you want is to get high. In one way or another, all you want is to get high. And we've told them it's not their fault. That's the big deal. And that they can do nothing about it. So we've destroyed them. We've destroyed self-esteem, which brings about these kind of epidemics. The second thing we've done is we've gotten government involved in medicine. So government, for decades, tells doctors what's important and what's not important, what they should prescribe and what they shouldn't prescribe, what they will be evaluated and ranked on and what they won't. And one of the things that they're ranked on is pain. And, and if their patients have pain, that's not good. They get a lower ranking. They're incentivized to focus on, in a sense, short-term pain reduction. We also tell them what drugs to prescribe and not what. And, and, and here's an example. Now, again, I'm not an expert, so I, I, I generally have a sense that this is applicable, but I haven't seen anybody writing about this directly. In 2004, I think it was 2004, the government banned Vioxx. Vioxx was a very effective pain medication, particularly for arthritis. A lot of people swore by Vioxx. It was, it was the pain medication that most worked for them. I just read an article somewhere that, that, that Tiger Woods is actually taking Vioxx in spite of the fact that it's illegal. They banned Vioxx because it, had, uh, it increases your odds of heart disease and stroke in about 10% of the patients. But because, it was, because 10% was the FDA ruled as too high, they didn't give you a choice to decide whether to take the risk or not. They banned it, which reduced dramatically the options doctor had in terms of what to give their patients which moved them more towards giving opioids to their patients. So government has reduced through regulation the, the options available. Government is also, by making it so expensive and difficult to develop new drugs, made it almost impossible. Nobody invests in pain-reducing medicine because of the lesson they learned from Vioxx. The, the government just yanked the approval and the company lost a fortune as a consequence. So I think government involvement in medicine, government involvement with the FDA, government involvement in how doctors should practice their craft is a big part of what we're seeing today, the big part of why we're seeing this at epidemics. So two things. One, a culture of victimhood that is destroyed, psychologically destroyed these people, and they're looking for a high. And second, government involvement in healthcare. Those are the causes of the opioid crisis. All right. We're almost done. Thanks all for listening. You've been listening to your own book show, and we're on the Blaze Radio Network.